0: You're listening to A Little Too Quiet, the Ferndale Library podcast, brought to you by the Friends of the Ferndale Library. I'm Jeff Milo, and today on the podcast, Kelly Forden is joining us to talk about her short story collection, I Have the Answer, which came out in April of last year through Wayne State University Press. Now, I could just leave this review for you of this book that came out, uh, a quote from award-winning author Desiree Cooper, called these 13 short stories in i have the answer quote pitch perfect kelly forden takes us to the precipice where trauma and triumph are equal possibilities the people in these stories are so hauntingly real that long after we put the book down we find ourselves wondering what has become of them and these really are stories that are unsentimental or uh, maybe unflinching very thought-provoking sometimes disquieting sometimes humorous broaching subjects that we may or may not have uh, difficulty talking about or might just want to avoid talking about but they are very relatable experiences relatable people fully defined characters you can really tell that whatever these characters are going through in these short stories kelly fordin really cares about them and i think that any reader can find something that will resonate with them in whatever these stories, whatever the characters are going through, whether it is grief or any trauma or just an overabundance of stress or that sort of wistful feeling when we see our parents aging or the difficulties of reckoning with our childhood and getting along with our siblings. And back in November of last year, Kelly Forden joined us for a virtual program where we were showcasing local authors it was called the beginning middle end series and she performed the story jungle life it's about a man talking to his elderly father about his time in vietnam as this man is on the edge of dementia and it's a beautiful story we're really glad that you would read that for us but today we're finally having her back on the podcast for just a full-on chat conversation about the creative process and some of her other pursuits, which include spring-fed arts and inside-out literary arts, where she is instructing aspiring writers and students. Prior to writing fiction and poetry, Kelly Fordin worked at the NPR member station here in Detroit, WDET, and for National Geographic, she is the author of a poetry book a poetry chapbook and her 2015 book garden for the blind is a novel told in short stories it was also on wayne state university press but we are going to be talking about i have the answer as well as the experience of releasing this book at the precipice of a pandemic but very importantly we talk about how writing great characters and being able to start conversations through your fiction is all fulfilling, but a key component of the creative process for being a writer is absorbing things, processing things. Mm, I'll say meditating about things. So for more on that, here's our chat with Kelly Forden.
1: Yes, it was a difficult time to release a book, especially a book with a facetious title, <laughs> like I have the answer. Right. You know, right. in the beginning of a pandemic.
0: <laughs> Everyone was looking I for thought, hope.
1: Yeah, exactly.
0: <laughs> Releasing this book really on the cusp, really early, early in the in the
1: <laughs> in the pandemic. So when my book launched, so the Gross Point Library did a very nice book launch on zoom, but none of us had ever, we'd never done it before. Right. Right. So early zoom days. Yeah. We had no idea what we were doing. Um, I tried to put up a presentation, but you know, how PowerPoint can be wonky on zoom. Mm -hmm. I couldn't get it to go. And then the librarian, you know, messaged me like halfway through and she's like, I don't know how to do Q and a. So we Uh. just, so we just stopped, Mm -hmm. you know, I read for a few minutes and then we stopped, but you know, I mean, I think that people were really nice and I was on a few different forums and mm-hmm. book talks and that kind of stuff, but I will admit it was a little bit of a disappointing year. Yeah. I hope that somebody reads it in the future. Well, that, <laughs> Let's put absolutely. it that way.
0: I think what's also telling is that a lot of your characters tend to go through hardships or personal tragedy or plans falling through. Uh, Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> Just like nobody your book wants book.
1: Be... <laughs> I know. And then half of them are trapped in their houses. Right. Right. So I think I mean the minute that one character was trapped in their house, I think people were like, uh, no, thank you. No. <laughs> <laughs> <I> mean...
0: <laughs> let's but let's talk you are an amazing writer. Let's talk about getting into writing. Um your I guess your your breakout was twenty fifteen with Garden of the Blind.
1: Correct. Yeah. I, I always wanted to be a writer. Yeah. But I was trying to be really practical after college. And so I decided to go to journalism school instead. Now, that's sort of hilarious too, because (laughs) that is not exactly lucrative. But I worked for a little while at WDET, and then I got pregnant, and the babysitter was making more money than I was. So I... (laughs) Yeah, because it's public radio. Again, you know? yeah, we but- do it for lo- we do it for love. Right. So um I just sort of scaled back and went to freelance writing, and then at a certain point, you know, with four kids, about a decade went by that I don't remember, and then I emerged from that and thought I really want to write fiction, and I had a lot of good material about you know family life and kids and parents and and I just started writing really quickly after that.
0: Yeah. And so kind of tell us a little before we get into I have the answer. Tell us a bit about Garden for the Blind. Now we have two central characters. Thanks. We have Alice and Mike, but this is this is a novel told in short stories. Of course, uh, I have the answer is also short stories. Short story seems to be your realm. Can you talk about that?
1: Sure. Um, well, Garden for the Blind was a novel in stories. And actually, originally when I wrote it, it was just short stories. And I submitted it to Wayne State University. and this may be interesting to other writers listening. Um, you know, like 2012, I think. And they said, we love these short stories, but there seems to be something missing. We're not sure quite what it is. And so then I went back through and I realized, oh my gosh, I think that these characters, even though I've given them different names, I think that these could be the same people. I think this could be a novel in stories. At the same time, I was becoming really concerned with some social issues in my neighborhood in particular. And um, I mean, just in any suburb of the Detroit area, it's not news that there's been a lot of racism. And so I incorporated that into um, the book and I tried to, I, I mean, actually in my mind, the book is really about white privilege and it was published in 2015 before that really became a touch point you know, and so when I was writing it, I was trying to point out white privilege, which was kind of not being talked about at the time. Mm-hmm. Then very quickly it became talked about all the time. But right. yeah.
0: As a writer, you are definitely not hesitant to, to get into these territories where you're, it is through fiction and character development, but bringing up these conversations and subjects that people might not want to talk about. They might feel a little uncomfortable talking about, bringing that. So I guess. Did you did you appreciate the the ability that fiction would allow you to, to 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 do that? Did you appreciate that ability early that you could bring these conversations to the forefront through, you know what I mean, through this craft?
1: Yeah. Well, I, I think that my background is the reason that I feel this way. Mm-hmm. And so strangely, I'm the daughter of a Republican congressman from Ohio and I and grew up in a very conservative household and also grew up like campaigning where you have to win the vote. And in order to win the vote, everybody has to like you. So you essentially can't speak. I mean, from a very young age, I was told, you know, smile, don't make a noise, don't say anything. And I was really obnoxious as a kid (laughs) and really outspoken. So I felt stifled for a long time. And then I emerged from all that. And, you know, I was, I've never voted conservatively I'm just not a conservative in my mind and so but you know I emerged from all that and I thought I'm never going to run for office I'm never going to like be, keep quiet and I and some things weren't working for me I'm just going to say it like <laughs> it's the greatest pleasure in the world to be able to say whatever you want to say and you do not make friends and influence people sometimes that way like I have lost friends and yeah. But I thought, like, I'm just going to be me. Yeah. You know what I mean? Yeah. <laughs> so what, it what, feels good. Yeah. And it's also scary, <laughs> I will admit. And and there are moments where I scare myself. But it's better than being quiet, you know?
0: How young were you when you first started writing? I guess what at what moment in your life, however young or old, did you say to yourself, oh, Kelly, I think you might be a writer or writing is is." What I find fulfilling, when did that happen?
1: Well, I think it was really early on. I mean, I was writing in high school. I was, so during that period where I wasn't really speaking out loud mm-hmm. uh, in any significant way, I was writing in journals and, um, and I was always reading a lot. And I realized that there was a whole nother world in books in which people actually spoke their mind and you got to know them and you knew all the intricacies of their lives. And it was so exciting to me So I think I always wanted to, except that I thought, I don't think I can earn a living like this. Mm -hmm. And at the time it just didn't seem practical. Now I wish I could go back and say, like, just go for it, Mm -hmm. you know, but so it really took me a long time and a lot of practice. And I, I guess that's the route I had to take.
0: (laughs) But then, yeah, but then you went into journalism and then you got off to this route of getting published.
1: So, I mean, it's a long road to getting published. you know, I started sending out short stories and a few short stories got published. And then I went to Queens university, which is in North Carolina. And I did that because it's low residency and I have these four kids. So you only had to go away for, you know, two weeks, once in July and once in January, that was really pivotal because I got to, you know, meet and work with established writers. Um, Jenny O'Feel was one of them. Um, I actually went because Elizabeth Strout was one of the teachers, but then she won the, I don't know, did she win the Pulitzer? I think I think so. That, yeah. And then she retired. Mm. But so I never actually worked with her, but there were a lot of great writers there. And so that, you know, I don't think you have to go to school. And I had gone to a lot of conferences, but I think working with people who know what they're doing, even either at a writer's conference or at, in an MFA program, just speeds up the process a little bit.
0: Right, I I can say Kelly Forden, great writer, great short story crafter. Also, you got into teaching, right? Can you tell us about uh, there's Spring-Fed Arts and Inside Out Literary Arts?
1: So Inside Out Literary Arts, I love so much because um, we work with kids in the Detroit public schools and I have, you know, the last couple of years I haven't been teaching on site there, but I'm still like supporting the organization. And what we do is we go in and we just work with imagination, uh, getting the kids really excited to create poetry. And I think it just enlivens their their day. Mm -hmm. I mean, it's all about fun. It's all about how much fun can we have in this one-hour period. Right. And, you know, we don't care if you spell it correctly. We don't care if, you you know, nothing, nothing. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so I relate to that so much because I have those memories of as a kid of not being able to do that kind of stuff. So I really loved it. And I think, I mean, the kids write some amazing stories, poetry, and we produce a book at the end of each year. Um, and a lot of the kids in the program have gone on to be fantastic, well-known poets and writers. That's great. So we yeah. didn't and mention it, was it yet. It started by Terry Blackhawk.
0: Yeah, we didn't mention it yet, but Poetry is a, is another bullet point for you. You have a poetry chapbook and a poetry book. You're not just short stories. You you do write poetry too. I didn't even mention that. So um, yes. And then Springfed Arts is cool. That's a nonprofit.
1: So Springfed Arts is run by John Lamb, and it's a um, a bunch of different classes all around the Metro Detroit area. Mm-hmm. And um, you can go to this website, which is I think springfed.org, and he lists all of the classes that are available. I believe it was started by M.L. Liebler, but I don't know the whole history of the organization. I just know it's been around, you know, for decades. And there are memoir classes, there are fiction classes, poetry classes. You can um, have memoir 101s with some of the fabulous writers. I think you just talked to Joy Gaines Friedler. Yep. Um, I think, well, she used to teach there. I'm not sure if she does anymore, but she's one of the great writers that has come through that program, you know, taught at that program.
0: Yeah, I'm, it's it's got it obviously has to be different modes to be just Kelly in pure creative form working on a story and then into that more teacher instructor role. But you know, setting aside what you might find fulfilling about the solo creative process, uh, what did you find fulfilling about being able to be in that educational role? You know, did you find that it was a natural extension or did you have to develop that?
1: I think the, one of the most exciting things about writing is that you go into this space and you don't know what's coming next, right? And that you're writing in order to discover what you think and what, you, what your imagination can create. The same thing happens in teaching in that you have this group of people that you're working with, and you don't know what they're going to come up with. And it may be that someone comes into your class and they're not really great at poetry, right? They've never done it before. It's stilted. It's not new or interesting. And then the next thing you know, one day they come in and something fabulous is happening on the page. It may just be a line, you know, or one time I had a writer um, in a fiction class and she was writing like cozy mysteries, nothing, you know, just was sort of wrote. Yeah. And then one day she came in with a flash fiction piece that was like weird and surreal. And like, I mean, off the charts. And just that, you know, I thought, wow, like we're capable of so much. We're such complicated. You you know, human beings are so complicated. And Mm -hmm. I just love it. So... Nobody should ever get discouraged. You do not know what is in there.
0: (laughs) (laughs) That's that's a segue for me is the uh, concept of flash fiction takes me into why uh, short stories are so fulfilling for you and and why you have found that you're able to thrive in that. I don't know what the breakdown is, but I think that so many writers think that they have to tackle the great American novel. And it's got to be 300 pages and it's got to be this big, uh, epic, sweeping thing but when you what's that what's that first story that opens up uh i have the answer shorebirds something yeah remember. the
1: shorebirds and the shaman i just yeah. remember
0: picking that up and i don't want to read it over here the podcast although i was tempted to the first paragraph in that even just the first sentence in sort of that that hemingway uh story about the six words you you're able I mean, to just give us so much in one sentence to establish a familiarity with the characters that you're giving us in a certain story. And I think that that's kind of a magic trick because when you have a novel, you have so much space and you can get tangential and you can take your time and you can describe the way that they're eating a sandwich. But what is it like for you to, to write a short story where you know that you might only have 10 pages now that you limit yourself or whatever, but you know, tell us about that magic Kelly.
1: Are you talking about Corinne's husband, Ethan died in his sleep? The first line? Yeah. Of that? Yeah, yeah. what
0: a, what a, That just gets us there immediately.
1: Yeah. Well, I think that I don't really have a formula. I wish I could say that I do. Sometimes I have like a snippet. The last story in um, Garden for the Blind, I had a sort of dream in which these monks were sitting in this garden mm-hmm. and they were holding up flowers. Mm-hmm. And I thought, it was just a dream that I had at night. And I thought that is the weirdest image. What what in the world would be happening that a bunch of Buddhist monks would be sitting in a garden holding up flowers? So I wrote the story around that. And then, so that was the last story in Garden for the Blind. Then I had to write every story leading up to that. And then for the shaman, um, the shorebirds and the shaman, I actually attended a weekend of constellation work with a friend of mine. And so I did witness constellation work is this it's a therapy technique in which say you have a family dynamic that's not working for Mm -hmm. you people so there's a group gathered around and you call on people to play the different members of your family and then you place them in different parts of the room it's like role playing yeah role playing Mm -hmm. but there's no speech so then people around watching it will say like wow, your dad's all the way over there by the window and he's turned away from you. I'm getting like a real sense of, or the people playing the parts will get these feelings. Anyway, it was really weird and kind of wonderful and it seemed to work for people. But I thought, what if I put a woman in this situation who's just lost her husband? And I was sort of thinking back to when I lost my dad and I was just so angry that other people were alive, like that the flowers were still coming up. I was just pissed off. And so I thought, I'm going to put a woman who's that angry in this Constellation work and just let her say everything that comes to her mind and see what happens. And I think she really had a moment of catharsis at the end. I think she really realized like how unique and special her relationship was with her husband and how it was a huge gift, even though it ended prematurely. That's what I'm hoping. So that was the moment... Of discovery and writing it that i was like oh my god she's been given this enormous gift mm-hmm. and um it was like it made me i guess it makes me personally just feel better about life mm-hmm. <laughs> myself
0: you i think the imagery imagery is really powerful when we when we do open up with that first story it is starting with that simple but gut-punching imagery of a a marriage bed that is only one person now or there's a story later, is it Get a Grip that is about agoraphobia. Yeah. And just standing at the kitchen sink, looking out the kitchen window or Jungle Life, which is setting in this in this restaurant right Mm -hmm. where a father and son are talking so you have these locations and these imageries of this and you just build the characters around it i think that is great but again we're talking about grieving loss we're talking about uh difficulties with pregnancy we're talking about (laughs) all you're talking about agoraphobia we're we're really talking about people who are trying to deal with it and the word that kept coming to me was resiliency because you are putting a lot of uh, challenges uh, onto on the shoulders of these people. I think that a lot of these stories are. I feel like all the words I'm using like it, evokes like depressive depressive imagery, but that really isn't the case because I feel like these these folks are always on the precipice of of a very difficult time in their lives, and they're always there at the end. It's not like it ends. It doesn't end a tragedy. You know what I mean? Talk about perseverance.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, um, I was thinking about. So I always try and reach a point where I'm uplifted in the end. And sometimes, sometimes that is not very obvious, right? Like her her husband's still dead in the story. So sometimes it's a really small moment, but I guess I try and get to the point where I feel like I can live with the ending, you know, and I'm not depressed at the end. And I was also thinking about when I was growing up in the conservative household and it was very religious There was some book or something, and now I can't recall, but there was that line, like, what then should we do? Or something like that. What then should I do? And and then I thought, well, that's what I think about when I'm writing these stories. Like, what then should these people do? Mm -hmm. And I I do try and take them through the whole experience. And I guess I've still carried with me from my religious upbringing, even though I'm not religious anymore, per se, I still feel like I want some redemption. I want some people, I want to lift people out of these situations. So I don't mind going in, but I want us to get out, if that makes sense. (laughs)
0: Uh, Absolutely. Surviving, it's like I said, it's, it's, (laughs) it's, we, we can get so stressed and we can get so full of anxiety and we can get kind of overwhelmed with the empathy that we're feeling for each other. And Mm -hmm. sometimes like a lot of these characters they're they're always this this is going to sound extreme they're always still standing you know what i mean there's always it is these books these stories not like you ever overtly say it in these terms but there is always tomorrow in at the ending of every one of these there's always a tomorrow yeah Um,
1: hopefully i mean that's what i was working toward
0: yeah yeah and i and you you kind of have uh I don't know if I've gotten you to say it exactly, but I think that these stories that I have said are about people dealing and working through would then help mm-hmm. the reader, you know, it resonate with what the character's going through and helping the reader deal and get through that kind of stuff. Uh, that must have started to become a conscious uh, uh, motivator for you to to actually help a reader. I know that sounds like a grandiose sort of mission, but fiction can do that. Fiction can do that.
1: I think you're right. And I, um, I studied with... Uh... A man named Paul Harding. I don't know if you've read Tinkers.
0: Oh, yes. It,
1: it won the Pulitzer Prize. And that was about a man on his deathbed. Mm-hmm. And he was looking back at his life and then his, I think it was his grandfather's life. Someone was a tinker, a man who went around selling um, goods in the early 1900s or late 1800s. Um, and he said, When I was writing Garden for the Blind and I was writing those two characters, and at first, I had them, I just didn't like the two main characters and I, I was, they were the bad guys, you know, and, and he said to me, um, you, you know, I wouldn't read this story. I, this is really well-written and it's a good story, but I wouldn't read it because I don't like these people. You need to tell me about them. You may, you need to make them real for me. And I've always, that's always stuck with me. Like there are no, bad people, right? Mm-hmm. There's just the perspective with which you can see the world may skew your attitude, your beliefs, how you deal with people who are different than you are. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it, it's necessary to understand that, I think. And writing the fiction and trying to understand that has made me a better person and less judgmental. Than I was beforehand. Yeah. So even if no one else read it, I've done myself a service oh, yeah. because I, you know, like everybody else can be really judgmental. And I'm, I'm really glad that I'm starting, that's starting to go away mm-hmm. through writing.
0: We can start to reduce the definition of someone and you give mm-hmm. us these full pictures. So I could say, yes, one of these stories has someone who's going through agoraphobia. They're still a full person. You give us a very full character or you could say in jungle life someone this elderly person is you know developing dementia and sometimes we think okay agoraphobic you're in a box uh you have dementia Mm -hmm. you're in a box and especially with jungle life for example we get to look back into this man's life and see his rich rich experiences and the emotions he still holds from his memories so always that full picture of your characters which is great kelly
1: Thank I was you gonna, so much, just think I out, really
0: appreciate it. Thinking out loud as a poet, too, I, I imagine that it's one of the most important things about poetry, and I'm being reductive here, is the final line. I think that the final line of a poem uh, can tend to be important. You kind of want to end it just perfectly. And I think that a short story has that in common. Um, you want that you want that last line to really resonate like the last best note <laughs> of a song, right?
1: Yeah. Well, you know, um, I studied with Byvie Francis, uh, who is a, an amazing poet from Detroit, who was here for, I mean, her whole life, basically, until about 10 years ago when she went to teach at Dartmouth. And I used to take classes with her at the Cafe 1923 in Hamtramck. And she was just the most amazing teacher. And I... Was so lucky to study with her for two years and she was the one who pointed out to me um, she would always say your poem almost always ends one or two lines before you think it does because the tendency is that you want to wrap it up in a bow Mm -hmm. and you want to put a zinger at the end right but but the real key is that the reader wants to provide their own zinger so you leave it so that they can actually have that catharsis that feeling like oh i get it Mm -hmm. and they supply it in their in their mind so that was so eye-opening for me yeah i love that i mean yeah it's an easy fix yeah
0: (laughs) well the book despite the fact that the world has been going through all this mess. The book has been out for a year, but I feel like it's still worth talking about. The, uh, it's called I Have the Answer, and it is about characters trying to find answers, I would say. Do you have any current or, or future plans or projects you're working on or things on your table right now? What's, what's up lately?
1: Well, I I've just like everybody else, I've talked to a lot of writers through the pandemic. Some people are just producing tremendous amounts of work. But most people I know have had a real have had a hard time concentrating. Yeah, and um, I I have as well. So I've produced a few poems, a couple of essays. I've worked a little bit on something that's either fiction or a memoir. I'm not sure which because it is based on my childhood. So I'm sort of wavering between the two uh, genres, just trying to figure out how real I want to be on the page. So, I haven't accomplished as much as I want, but I'm still plugging away. And sometimes I surprise myself by like losing material in the computer. And then I pick it up later and I'm like, oh, I have 20 pages. Who knew? Mm -hmm. (laughs) So, I'm hoping.
0: I was going to say, this is obviously without going into cliche, uh, you know, in unprecedented year, that is the no one knows how to adapt to this. Uh, and so it's completely Um, understandable that, that we, we would have trouble maintaining motivation, but that might also be going around in your head of how you may or may not be engaging with youth or young writers or aspiring writers. Uh, I'm sure if you haven't already been having these conversations that you're probably going to have plenty of conversations on the horizon of engaging with writers in an educational format and they, their, their brains just can't really uh, attune themselves to the creative approach like they once could. Uh, this is a whole other thing to work through, you know?
1: It does feel like, you know, there's something so monumental happening out in the world. Mm-hmm. What are these small stories or poems worth? Mm-hmm. Or they just don't, you know, it just makes you feel like I need to just sit here and absorb this moment and then maybe write something later when I've acclimated or figured out how I feel about it. It, I have that, you know, after 9-11, I remember that, you know, we walked around in a daze for like three months. I remember not being able to think clearly for a long time. And I know a lot of people had that same feeling. And now we've gone through an extended trauma. Mm -hmm. So it makes sense that things, you know, we're not processing like we used to. Right you know, something will come out of it, you know, artists and writers. Well, actually, there's a thing called Telephone, which I should plug. Yeah. If you, uh, yeah, Nathan Langston is a Seattle artist, and he came up with this game called Telephone. (laughs) And he contacted writers and artists all over the world. And so it's, and nobody knew what the full scope of the game was. We would just get, um, I got like one visual uh, piece from a Buddhist, I think she was or um, a Buddhist priest mm-hmm. somewhere. Anyway, and then I had to respond to that. So I wrote a poem, Doreen O'Brien, who's uh, another Metro Detroit writer. She also was in the game and she wrote a story. So um, just Google Nathan Langston and telephone and you could spend like a whole day playing the game. It's fantastic. That's
0: great. It's,
1: yeah, there are songs. Uh, poems, fiction, yes, visual art?
0: Well, I think two, two things I'd like to end on is that I think everyone is always going to need stories. And another cliche I'll indulge is that, especially when it comes to short stories, I think that they can be very meditative. I think that you can complete one in maybe a half hour if you sit down with it. And it's... You know, it's restorative to give yourself that quiet, alone time with a story. So, people are going to need those stories. So, keep writing them, Kelly. But that word you used is so important, too absorb. That's all part of the process.
1: That's right. Yeah. That's right. Well, thank you so much, Jack. I really, really appreciate this.
0: We'll have uh, links in the show notes. uh, Wayne State University Press, I have the answer and more info about Kelly. And we say thank you for joining us. Thank you. And that was our chat with Kelly Forden, author of an award-winning short story collection, Garden for the Blind, as well as a poetry chapbook, The Witness, which won the Eric Hoffer Award for the chapbook and a poetry collection, Goodbye, Toothless House. Her latest came out in April of last year. I have the answer. Wayne State University Press. More links in the show notes. And that is our episode, A Little Too Quiet, the Ferndale Library podcast brought to you by the friends of the Ferndale Library. I'm Jeff Milo. Music is provided by local musician Chad Stocker. If you enjoyed this chat, please share it to social media or tell a friend. And if you've been listening to us for a while already, remember to rate, review, or subscribe. Thanks for listening.